Let's turn now to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. And I know that we face an uphill struggle here because many of you are so familiar with this scripture that um, you think that you know it. (laughs) And you do. Yes, in a real and meaningful way, you do know it. But um, my prayer is that God will bring it home to you in a fresh way today, that it may be the very thing for which God intended it to be, to place, place comfort and, and confidence in you. And let's pray for this first before we read this scripture. Father, this is a psalm of trust. I'm venturing to say, like no other. Of course, no two psalms are exactly alike, but this one is one that um, your people have found to stand out as they travel through time and space in this world. It has been a source of special comfort and confidence among your people. Is it too much to ask that it may be so today, Father, that you would bless this scripture to our hearts? For we come to you with our empty hands of faith, hoping to receive what we need. In Jesus we pray, amen. So this is a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness For his name's sake, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows, Surely, goodness and steadfast love will hunt me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One of the most recognizable scriptures. It is written by a man who himself was a shepherd boy was not much that you could tell David about shepherding sheep. It was written by a man who was also a traveler or a fugitive for many years of his life. He did not know where to lay his head. He didn't have an address to send mail to because he had to move from one place to another. He was a traveler, a fugitive. And so David's life experience, his life story is poured into the imagery of this beautiful piece. 23 is a psalm of confidence, yet not ignorant of danger and enemies. Now, I find it ironic that there is a history of identifying 23 with funerals. Of course, it's not wrong to read Psalm 23 at a burial. 
But the transition from what is clearly a psalm of confidence and trust to a song of condolence for grieving folks is not only a seismic shift, or you may uh, lower this one tier and say it's a bit of a stretch, but it also limits your horizon. It limits your ability to hear it on its own terms yet again. And so you battle that old demon familiarity on two fronts. One, yes, it is a psalm that we've heard many times before. And yes, there has been a history of interpretation, or I should say a history of usage. But don't. Don't let it keep us from venturing into Psalm 23 with an open mind. It draws on two key motifs. In verses 1 through 4, the shepherd-sheep motif. And then in 5 through 6, the host-traveler motif. And so here's your first question. Why does it have to be so complicated? Why does David not stick to one motif? Wouldn't it be enough to talk about shepherd and sheep? Yes, it would be. But the answer to your question is very simple. It is not only for added richness and fullness, but for intensification. You see, the shepherd image, it takes you far but only so far. It has to end somewhere before the analogy breaks down. The host motif takes you further, and it takes you deeper into the mystery of the gospel. And so, both halves of this psalm, they work together. They are fully integrated they feed on each other. They work with each other. They work for each other. Let me give you a few examples, okay? Both halves begin with a present experience of God's care, His tender, loving care for you here and now in order to project that experience into the future with a confident agenda, a confident posture, this is the definition of hope. It begins with a good experience in order to project it into the future. Anxiety is the opposite. It begins with a bad experience and projects that into the future. Psalm 23 does the former. Then again, both halves talk about how God feeds you, how God protects you, how God guides you, how God provides for you. But while the first one stops at the side of a grave or stops in the sight of death fearlessly, the second half takes you beyond the grave. It takes you further. It takes you into the house of the Lord, which is the crown of all of our hopes and aspirations as believers. And then again, both these halves describe changing landscapes. You travel through them on the road of life, and each half has three pictures, 
three landscapes or impressions combining for a total of six. And here they are. Let me list them for you. There is a lush glen, number one. Then there is a right path or paths of righteousness on which the psalmist travels. Number two. Then there is a dark gorge of the death shadow. Number three. And again, there is the presence of enemies as a stopover at night. Number four. Then there is goodness and steadfast love on the path of life. Number five. And finally, home. Home at last. Number six. And these six are arranged in a beautiful, symmetrical fashion. If you begin uh, with the beginning and the end of the psalm, these are images of rest and peace. The first one in this beautiful, lush glen is temporary. The last one isn't. It's eternal. It's permanent. Then moving inward from both ends of the psalm, you see two scenes of traveling with corresponding theological terms. Righteousness on one hand, the paths of righteousness, those are right paths that you travel in. And then on the other end, steadfast love and goodness that pursue the psalmist on the road of life. And then moving to the very center, there are two more scenes, and they describe, at least they include, what is not present elsewhere, danger. Real danger, first a nameless evil in the valley of death shadow, and then a tangible evil in the presence of personal enemies. And when you fly over this psalm at high, high elevation, then these six scenes, they reduce to four manageable concepts that are arranged in a pattern. The psalm leads you from a place of rest to a place of nameless danger to a personal threat to the house of the Lord in an A, B, B, A pattern or in the form of a parabola that also describes the ministry of Jesus Christ who came from heaven, who died on the cross and went back to sit at the right hand of the Father in the house of the Lord. And it is also a pattern that describes the shape of the history of redemption. This is where we came from. This is what we became. This is what we will be. This is where we will be. And the multi-layered images and, um, and, and landscapes, they stimulate reflection in their own way, of their own kind, each one. But there is one, one unifying concept that bridges the changing sceneries as well as the two halves and their dominant motifs of the shepherd and the host. What is it? It's God's position relative to the psalmist. In 1 through 3, God is leading David. In 4 through 5, God is with David. And in 6, God is following 
David. In other words, God, in this psalm, God appears before, beside, and behind on David's homeward journey. And so, you ask the question, well, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yes. Psalm entitles you to ask that question, what could possibly go wrong? I employ this key of God before, beside, and behind you to lead you on this voyage through Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So this is the stated theme of the psalm. Now he makes me to lie in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Oh, what a pastoral scene. If ever there was one, this is it. Here's a lush meadow. Here's a little brooklet, a still water, fresh water. There is green grass. Oh, this is a place hard to find in the desert. In a dry land. But the shepherd knows where to find it. He knows. And this is where he leads to refresh and to restore you. The shepherd is Jesus, of course. Here they eat. Here they drink. Here they rest. Until it's time to go on. Because this is not a permanent resting place. It is only temporary. And so, the dominant image here in this part of the psalm is God is before you. Jesus is before you. And it's significant, isn't it, that this is the first imagery that he conjures. The imagery of a serene, peaceful place. He isn't saying, well, and this is how your experience will be. This is how the days of your life will feel and look like. No. But he is saying that if you want to know what God sees, if you want to know ultimate reality from God's vantage point, then look at this scene. You are as safe in any time of your life, as the sheep in this meadow, any time, anywhere. And he is also saying that his constant, all-embracing, loving care, it will lead you to a place like this. He is saying that his loving care for you will also show, it will show, I I assure you, it will show in times of refreshment, times of peace, and necessarily so. You must taste a place like this. You must taste a blessing from God. Sometimes you hear the voice of your shepherd and you don't listen or you don't understand. that God's story and your story are linked in the same way that shepherd and sheep belong together. They, they can't be separated. They belong together. The story isn't there without these two. 
that your story and God's story belong together. It seems odd. Your experience seems to betray the image. And it may seem unbelievable. And then at times you're on fire for the Lord, only to find that it's a flash in the pan. You can't preserve the moment. You can't preserve the feeling. And you feel like a fool. Because you had a little light. God gave you light, but you didn't walk in the light. And now the light is gone again. And often... And this is not a flash in the pan. We all know this. Often you're preoccupied with yourself. You, I, myself, we always get in our way. We are our greatest personal enemy. You are preoccupied with yourself. And you're constantly battling yourself. And you are preoccupied with your thoughts those patterns that keep revolving around your heart. You're preoccupied with your fears and those things that you dread, those things that make you upset. And you may be entangled in worldly thorns, thorns that teach you to make something of yourself, and you fail to see the shepherd. You lose sight. And then sometimes, and this is also true, sometimes you do hear, and you do understand. And for a moment, everything is crystal clear. And there is no problem anymore. Light and peace fill your heart. And your feet stand in a wide open place, and you take a deep breath. Take a breather. And you praise your shepherd. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. He really does refresh. And he really does lead you beside still waters. The shepherd knows his sheep. And he will do this as often as you need it. Shepherd knows his sheep. But what's most important (laughs) is that in time of peace... In a place, in a situation like this, you follow the Lord. This is David's portrait. In a serene environment, David is behind the Lord, his shepherd, and Jesus is before him. He goes before you. And each season in life has its own challenges. But I found that in a time of tranquility, in a time where things are quiet and things seem to go well, you must work harder and you must be more intentional about following, staying behind Jesus. For when you are coasting, you have a propensity to fall asleep. You have a propensity to become careless and you have a propensity to even become reckless. God knows this. As he warned Moses, or through Moses, and he said to the children of Israel, when you have come to the rich land of Canaan, you have eaten, and you are full, and you grow fat, you will kick against the Lord. 
and you will become overly confident in yourselves. And you will become complacent and you will forget the Lord. Your shepherd is faithful, but your shepherd also expects faithfulness on your part. This is why every Christian must learn to be open to the, to the shepherd's discipline. The rod is not only used to lean on, it's also used to direct the sheep. Every Christian must be open to God's discipline. And not only this, that is after the fact or when it is underway, open to God's discipline in inviting it. Lord, if I am about to do something foolish, if I am about to destroy my marriage, if I am about to destroy my ministry, if I am about to neutralize my testimony, will you hit me with a two-by-four? Will you nail me? Nail me good. Psalm 25, verse 10 says, All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and testimonies. This is conditional, my friends. It is conditional. If you want to experience his blessing and refreshment, then you must be willing to submit. And you must be willing to follow, walk behind him. Even if you think, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm good. For God offers you spiritual food and drink. He offers you these things in his word. If you listen, if you want it enough, he'll lead you to the water, but you must drink. You must take the drink. He may say, come to me and I will give you rest. Like someone who has an appointment with you tomorrow at such and such a time. But then you are distracted. You get together with your friends. You forget time and there you go. You're all over the place. You forget yourself and then you realize, oh, I better get going, and you're late. And he says, I wanted to give you a rich blessing today, but you were too busy. And you say, yeah, but can I have it now? No, not now. You didn't show up. Oh, so you don't love me anymore. Is that it? Oh, you always have my love. You know this. You know better than that. And I will give you the blessing as soon as you can handle it. It's yours. Can I have another chance? Of course. I'll give you as many chances as you need. By all means, come to me and I will give you rest. Your rendezvous with Jesus is every day. It's all the time. You practice his presence. Are you avoiding him? 
Are you staying away from him? Are you coming to him? Are you seeking him? Especially in quiet times, you must follow his lead. Let him lead you to the green pastures. Let him refresh you. And the same is true for the next line. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. So now the shepherd calls the sheep. Hey, get up. It's time to go. So they must go away from this lush oasis. Right paths. Right paths are paths that only the shepherd knows. And only he can show you. God led Israel through the wilderness without fail. They followed the pillar. Pillar of cloud and fire by day and by night. But as for you, you don't know, you don't need to know something new. You don't need new revelation. You don't need special insight. His revealed will once and for all settles the matter. His revealed will in scripture is sufficient. It tells you all that you need to know. Whatever your profession, whatever your status quo, it leads you in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Let him lead you into right paths. And you know what this means. Let him lead you into the obedience of faith. That's what it means. The obedience of faith. Faith that shows in obedience, walking in right paths. And his right paths are safe. They're safe. It's always safe to follow Jesus, no matter the circumstances. And all the more, since there is real danger, there is danger lurking around the next pass. And this now brings us to the second of these three images. God is before you. Jesus walks before you. But Jesus is also beside you. For one of God's or Jesus' right path leads you to the place where you do not want to go. The place that you wouldn't choose to go. Leads you right down into the valley of the death shadow. And this is a deep and treacherous ravine of perpetual twilight because the sun can't reach to the bottom. It's dark down there. And um, you may lose your footing. The path is not clearly marked. And it's very steep. And you can fall to your death. It is very dangerous. And now you see the shepherd no longer going before you, but he takes you by the hand and he walks beside you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, you shall not be overwhelmed. When you pass through fire, you shall not be burned. And so here, I will fear no evil, for you are with me beside me. Deep down in dark places, anything can happen. 
But as long as he is beside you, his hand, his rod, his staff, the insignia of the shepherd king, they will keep you and get you through it. And so this this is your comfort in your affliction. Do you see? This is the word upon which God has made you to hope. I am with you. I will be with you as I have been with you. I am your God. And God does not only speak words. God's words are powerful. They affect what they promise. And God has an uncanny ability to come home to your heart because he has the key to your heart to comfort you in trouble and to strengthen you. And the next stage in the journey now marks this shift that we mentioned earlier, a shift from the shepherd motif to the host motif. Now David sits at table. He reclines at table, and God is entertaining him. He's his host. Danger is still present. In fact, it's accentuated. It is even more menacing in the presence of personal enemies. This is not just a nameless potential danger. These people, they are here to harm you. That's what they are there for. That's what they do. They want to harm you. But rather than to sink in fear, on this stopover, in the night, along the way, David refuses to look. Look at them. Look at the adversaries. David looks to God. He looks only to God to see what he is doing in such a time. Rembrandt, the famous Dutch painter, has been accused of glorifying the ugly. Well, the people who say this, they haven't seen his, uh, his own self-portrait. It's not the face of a pretty man. It's very realistic. It's harsh. And maybe even um, disturbing. And he's been criticized for using black, the color black, more than any other color in his paintings. Or the people who think so, I believe, they simply don't like his paintings. And they can take this home if they want to, but you couldn't accuse the psalmist of harboring a negative attitude. But not only does God sustain David in the presence of foes, he's furnishing a table. That means he's sustaining him. No, he blesses adversity to his heart by anointing him and by filling his cup, fatness, oil, and fullness, the cup, combine to cast a stunning scene. It's almost absurd. Here's David facing real enemies, real conflict. And he sees their faces. He hears them rattling their swords in the dark. But God is by his side to entertain him, giving him the treatment of a guest of honor. And better yet, he gives him the treatment of a friend who's turned in for the night. 
Jesus, when his feet were anointed by a prostitute, referred to that woman as one who honored him. And his worthy host, Simon the Pharisee, not a bad man, I wouldn't say that, but it wouldn't occur to him to bestow distinction on Jesus in the way that this woman has done it with abandon. And Jesus says to Simon, look, why do you find fault with this woman? When I entered your house, did you wash my feet? That's what people do to a guest of honor around here. And when I sat down at your table, did you anoint my head with oil? This woman anoints my feet. And here, it's God who stoops and anoints you and treats you like a guest of honor in the midst of these enemies, in the presence of conflict. Now, if this is mere poetry, relish it and then walk away from it. Oh, this is cool. But if this is how God thinks of you, and if this is how God cares for you, especially in the presence of conflict in your life, then, then be astonished. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Your cup is overflowing because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. God fills your cup and anoints you with the oil of gladness because he honors those who honor him. And whether I honor God or not is most clearly seen when I face conflict. He entertains you as a friend. He fills your cup as a guest of honor. He blesses the experience of evil to your heart, not necessarily neutralizing the pain, but he makes it worth your while because he communicates himself to you. As he communicates himself to you in the Lord's Supper and in his word, he applies himself to you he blesses you. I made the experience that um, my shepherd, Jesus, is closest to me in the time of trouble. When I turn into him seeking shelter in the night, and he blesses me with his presence by my side. So see him at work. Look for him to work, especially in trouble. Wait for him to work anticipate him to work. Know that he is always working for your good. And this is what you see now in verse 6. This is the last image of the voyage prior to coming home. It shows David back on the road again. He's brimming with confidence after God has brought him through the night as his host and as his friend as he has been by his side. And now he says, Surely goodness and steadfast love shall chase me all the days of my life. Yes, you've heard right. Chase me. This verb is typically used 
to describe the pursuit of an enemy. Someone who wants to slit your throat. Someone who wants to take vengeance. And the enemy pursues you mercilessly, tirelessly. He never gives up until there is blood. This shows how eager and how active God pursues you for your good. Steadfast love pursues you all your days. Look not to your enemies or look not to the danger. Look to the Lord. Look behind you. So God here, God is behind you. Before, beside, and behind you. The psalm comes full term, doesn't it? Not only are you to follow the Lord, the Lord will follow you. A sneak attack is most likely to occur behind you. And Jesus says, I have your back. Don't be afraid. Not only do I bless hardship to your life, but positively, positively, I send goodness and steadfast love behind you. They will hunt you and they will pursue you all the days of your life so that you can never get away from them. I am behind you. I'm on your heels. I pursue you with my love. And it's the taste of this love, the taste of the Lord's goodness and steadfast love that makes you long for the end of your odyssey. If you had no taste of the Lord's goodness, why seek that place where he is at home? Why want to be there? But you have tasted that the Lord is good. You've tasted it. And since the advent of satellite technology, we are able to be present on any, at any, any place on this planet. We are present at a football game. We can be live in a cave. We can watch a diver underwater. With satellite technology, we enjoy live broadcasts that make us feel as though we're really there. We're in that moment. Why is this so important to us to be there, to be in the moment, to be live? It has nothing to do with authenticity or credibility, because you take a word of a faithful witness, a person whom you consider faithful, you take that person's word. You don't need to see to believe it. It has nothing to do with authenticity or credibility, because uh, an, illusionist, an illusionist like David Copperfield can manipulate your perception so that you see things that are really not happening. In the same way, pictures and films, they can be forged at will with today's technology. But when you see something authentic, something real, when you see something beautiful like a sunset, how do you respond? It's always the same. You want to be in it. 
you see the beautiful sunset and you want to be in it. You want to live in that moment. Visit the Empire State Building in New York or stand on the Rialto Bridge in Venice and take a selfie. Or walk on the Chinese Wall. These are the dreams that people have, aspirations, things that people want to do and experience. They want to be there. They want to be in there. And, and when the moment comes true, when this is actually experienced, it may not be that imposing. It may, in fact, be disappointing. But this dream, this dream unites all Christians, all believers, to see God's promise, to be in God's promise, in God's house. And this is not primarily a spatial experience, even though it will be, because there will be a kingdom of God. But it is the beatific vision or the sight of God's face, God's presence, that is the answer to every form of pain, every doubt, is the answer to every riddle that you cannot figure out. It is the answer of all things. It's the answer that God will give you. It's the answer that God has for you. It's the answer that will be yours. And for now, we only have the, have the images, do we? We have the images. The wandering preacher. The good shepherd before you. The host of the table beside you the crucified behind you. But, but then we will see him, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When you read Psalm 23, and when you own it, own it, you have every right to say, what could possibly go wrong? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this word of encouragement. Thank you for putting confidence in us, confidence not in the flesh, confidence in you who have begun a good work in us. How could you not finish it, and what could possibly go wrong? Oh, Father, I pray that you would would inscribe the message of this psalm on every heart, that you would um, put it in a cage so that it cannot fly away or escape, that it will be forever ours. And if we are lost, and if we lose our way, that this word would find us, and that we would find it, and that we would own it, and that we once again know that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Amen.